Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. You know the guest of today's flashback episode as a television personality, author, podcaster, Michelin star chef, and the creator of my new favorite instant noodles. Here's David Chang. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. David. What's up? First of all, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Of course. Thank you for having me. I listened to your memoir on audiobook, and I'm so glad that I did. It is so moving and compelling. It's so well written. How are you feeling about everything? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. You know, it's present for a lot of people that are learning about it or reading about it, but it's maybe a little bit like, you know, a TV show or movie that comes out. By the time you do the press, you're like, wait, it's so weird to talk about it in present day. And of course, I wanted to do well, but it's also strange that I have it all out there. So I sort of ignore it. Yes. <laughs> simultaneously, right? That's totally my strategy. Yeah. But there is that vulnerable feeling. And then having to do press where you're forced to like recap your memoir. I hate doing press. It's really difficult for me. Listen, as a chef, I never thought I'd have to do press with food media to begin with. And then when we started to film TV shows, I never thought I would be one of those people that you see on like e-television news where they sit in a hotel room just doing interview after interview. And I don't know how you guys do it because you're asked the same question over and over and over again. And I'm like, wow, these fucking guys are really good actors because how the hell do you do it? It's probably like making the tuna carpaccio night after night. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to start this interview asking you to tell our listeners about red dragon sauce. Ah. Yeah. Why don't we do that? I, uh, over the years, have realized that so much of what Momofuku has done food-wise has been very educational. I think trying to push the boundaries, trying to make delicious food, innovative value. But also it's sort of been a jokey art project too, especially when it comes to like racism in Asian American food and representation. And I just get so mad when I see people market Asian food with the dragon lettering and everything. And I knew people were going to copy our recipes too without, I don't mind copying, just do the homework and pay respect. Okay, see, this is the stuff I want to get into, the idea of duplication. So I knew people were going to copy it. And I also knew they were going to copy it blindly. Wait, wait, wait. Will you tell our listeners what it is? Yeah, well, red dragon sauce is basically gochujang, which is like a Korean chili sauce. If you go to a Korean restaurant, you get it on your bibimbap or, you know, rice cakes. It's a very, like, ubiquitous thing. It would be like a Heinz ketchup. Exactly. And I just thought, let's just make it this fucking ridiculous name, Red Dragon Sauce. And nobody, not one person ever questioned the name. And over the years, I probably say a couple dozen times, I've seen it on menus. And I think there's actually a restaurant that called itself Red Dragon Sauce or something like that too, right? Like that was like their special house sauce. That chapter really got me thinking about our ideas original, essentially. And you write about how every chef owes a debt of gratitude to some degree to everybody before them. I admire people who strive 
for an original idea. And you are that person. And sometimes it works and it's incredible to see. I felt like what I heard in your book is your passion towards the conception of a brilliant idea to completion. Like, has your theory been proved? Yeah, I think it has, but also it's a work in progress, right? There's a line by Stanley Kubrick, the great director that I've used. It's like, everything's been done in film. Every shot, every angle, every line. Your job is just to do it 10% better. And in food, it's almost impossible to invent something new. And the people that do invent something new are like the Nestle's, the Mars, the giant conglomerates that can create just about anything. And the reality is a lot of the food techniques you see in restaurants are copies of what those companies created, like the failed patents. And I think the older I get, the more I realize there's nothing I've ever done that's truly original. Making something original is the intent to make it better. That's what I mean. It doesn't mean like completely new. It's just like, can I make it better than it's been done before? That to me is originality. That's an amazing way to put it. I love it when you write about why I get mad about food, because I related to that in terms of I've worked with actors who don't seem to really love acting. And like anybody, we can fucking gripe about all kinds of shit. Like, oh, my 5 a.m. call or whatever. Like, it is especially frustrating when I work with people who don't seem to just like that performance element. Mm -hmm. And so when you write about working with people that don't have your drive and passion, how it makes you angry. Yeah. Even people closest to me are like, why do you care so much? I've never been able to easily articulate it because I don't know why I care about cutting something perfectly or making this dish as delicious as possible. In some ways, I think it gives me meaning. At the end of the day, it's why be mediocre at something? You have like one life. Yeah. This is your task. This is your job, whatever it is. And I know it sounds cliche. And if I was telling a younger version of myself, like a 10-year-old Dave Chang, I'd be like, shut the hell up. But you know, and the irony is too, I didn't care about doing things properly like most of my life. I've always been allergic to work. I never went to class. I could give a shit about doing anything right, folding my clothes, doing anything. Like even now, like I can't take care of myself, but when I'm in the kitchen, everything has to be done right. It's a weird thing. And I think a lot of professional chefs feel the same way. I don't know how many 40-year-olds to 60-year-olds listen to this podcast, but whomever they are, wherever they are, if they have that 24-year-old son that's living at their house right now, they're pissed off at you. Yeah, because you don't want to be told what to do. They're like, well, maybe he could become that chef, honey. Very few people got as drunk as I did or did as many drugs or got as low of a GPA as I did. You're a man of extremes. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> I have no idea how it all worked out. So wait, golfing. Mm. So you were on your way to be like a pro golfer. Well. I wonder how you go from a single-minded focus like golf yeah. to a very multitasking lifestyle like being a chef, running a kitchen, mm. and your multiple businesses. Did you learn suddenly how to be a crazy hyper multitasker? No, and most people would say, David, you're a horrible multitasker. I mean, that's just the truth. But the thing with golf is I never really enjoyed playing golf. My dad forced me to do it, and I burned out at, like, age 12. I mean, that's all I did every day, play golf. And, you know, in that age of my life, I was such an obnoxious little shit because I thought I was better than everybody else. And the reality was I was better than most people until I wasn't. 
And that's when I think I just couldn't handle not being better than people. Do you think that your dad viewed you as a prodigy that would help the family? I don't know if it would help the family. It was what he wanted me to be. I have no idea how he got this vision. But he's like, you're going to be a professional golfer. Maybe he took some LSD and I don't know, but I have no idea how the hell he came up with this idea. My mom wanted me to be a pianist. And for seven years, I took piano lessons. Did you enjoy it at all? Fuck no. Do you play it at all now? No. What about you? Do you play golf? Well, the last time I played golf seriously, I threw my clubs into the ocean. I fucking hate it. I still have this disconnect that I could beat everybody in the world, even though there's no way I can. But golf was so ingrained in me. And I guess piano is a little bit similar. So imagine if you were playing like competitive piano. Oh, God. All right. That's sort of what my life was like. And at some point you just are like, fuck it. I'm going to try to like be good at this. And I got very competitive. And that is what is the connection between golf and whatever my restaurant life became. That's how I got anything done is I hate losing. I hate losing so much. (laughs) It drives me crazy. So you must hate doing things you're bad at. Yes, but that's why I actually do it. Well, what about something like bowling? If I had the time to bowl, I would try to become the best bowler of all time. I would do it over and over and over again. That's like my personality. I will do the things that I don't even like to do. I've been a waitress and I was a waitress at a retirement home. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, No tips. 525 wow. an hour. Wow. But at least there were only two menu options. It was like the chicken breast and fish and chips. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's tough. You describe in your book a position in the kitchen that is underlooked. Oh, yeah. So that's the garmanger station. So let me just for the listeners that if you work in, let's just try to say a fancy restaurant, more than likely it's based on a French system. And that French system was created by this guy named Escoffier like 100 years ago. And he based on the military system in France. And the word chef means boss. Sous chef means under chef. There's a chef de partie, which is like the head of a station. And then you have chef de cuisine, which is basically number two, technically. And everything is regimented and there's a hierarchy. And you have the saucier slash meat stations. You have the poissonier, which is the fish station. You have the entremetier, which is the vegetable grain station, and so on and so forth. And the station that today, currently, I think gets not the love that it deserves is the garmanger station, which is the cold station. And the cold station in cultures like Japan and France are deemed as the highest station of honor. It is the most technically difficult station to do. Why? Because you have to learn how to not just make salads and vinaigrettes, but you also do charcuterie, which is like making sausages and pâtés and terrines. Anything that's cold, you're in charge of. That sounds also like kind of the boring station. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of cooks, including myself, grow up being like, I don't want to do that fucking station. I want to be on the line. I want to cook over there where it seems cool and dangerous. That's not the case. If you learn how to be great at that station, it will serve you very well down the road in your career. Because learning to flip a piece of meat, however that might seem to be difficult to somebody, is not that difficult. And it's never easy to do, but to have skill and mastery, I think Garmanger is the most important station. But a lot of people, at least in America, think of it dismissively as that's just the salad station. And in some restaurants, it is. And I think there's a big divide between what it could be and what people understand it to be. And you write about those hours of chopping... And chopping. Yeah. Well, that's what fucking cooking is. It's the dumbest shit. Listen, I don't know how cooking became popular because in like 25 years, it being a coal miner, if that's even around or something like that, working in the oil rig becomes cool. 
then I'm going to be like, the world is just totally out of control. I don't know what the hell's happening because that's sort of the repetition and drudgery that cooking is. It's chopping, it's cleaning, chopping and cleaning. 90% of your day is just doing that. And you don't get to really do anything new. Early on, like back in March, when we first began to quarantine, I would comfort myself by watching kind of odd things on YouTube. (laughs) But I saw like some ad for a cruise ship or something, which was complicated in and of itself. But they were having close-up shots of the food and there was lots of garnish. And it was at a time when I was first digesting like the potential trauma or the uncertainty. I remember thinking, will the aesthetic of food be no longer counted? And I was thinking about this as my roots were growing out as well. Like, I'm not wearing a bra, like, fuck all the protocol. (laughs) I see where you're going. For me, that's where I'm at. And I think I was headed to this direction before the pandemic of what's the point of doing something that is frivolous. I always use the example of like a three Michelin star restaurant where you're serving a duck breast and you trim the duck perfectly into a rectangle. And I've been in these kitchens. I've worked in these kitchens. You throw away all the other parts of the duck, you know, and you're just like, well, that's fucking stupid. Legitimately, I think it's important to ask how useful are restaurants? Oh, they're so useful. They are, but they're also sort of frivolous too, right? People could question the same thing about my profession. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're way less useful than you guys, David. (laughs) Well, you guys give joy and happiness to people. I guess restaurants can do that too. But yeah, I don't know. And being able to cook at home as much as I have, that has made me realize what food is without sounding like a cheesy Hallmark card. Cooking for people that need to be fed, people that you want to express your love to, it's always what like grandma's food is. It's just simple. It's delicious. It's perfectly imperfect. And I think restaurants should have a little bit more of that. And I'm guilty of it too. You know, my restaurants and the restaurants I often admire, you want to be like the coolest thing. You want to do the most innovative thing. But at the end of the day, there's also just feeding people, right? David, can I give you two countries and will you describe your most memorable meal? It doesn't have to be best. Done. Let's go. Number one, Italy. Italy. Okay. My most memorable meal was in Milan about 10, 11 years ago. And I was there doing a culinary conference. And I was dining out with my friend who's a local. And he said, you got to go to this restaurant. This grandma makes all the food by herself. And Milanese food is very different than the rest of Italy. At that time, I had some understanding of Italian food, but didn't know. Like, it's actually sort of weird because it's got a lot of French and German influences. That's where, like, you get the effect of, like, a schnitzel. It's just not what you think Italian food is. And I just got this whole lesson of what food from Milan could be. And it was beautiful. It was also the height of white truffle season. And we have everything. And she brings out this giant wheel of gorgonzola dolce. And then she takes like a giant birthday cake size of this (laughs) fucking stinky blue cheese and puts it on her plate in front of us. And then she takes a grapefruit size white truffle and she just obliterates the entire white truffle all over this piece of cheese. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what the fuck is going on? That's not going to work. That's the dumbest combination I've ever seen. And secondly, I'm like, why would you waste a white truffle? on this and then my friend in italian translates what i'm asking to her and she basically looks at me with disdain saying i grew up thinking the potato was more valuable than the truffle and a lot of italians did they would rather have had a potato than a truffle because that was more nourishing and gave them more (laughs) sustenance they don't give a shit about this and on top of it all when i tasted the cheese with the tons of white truffle 
it was maybe the single best bite of food I've ever had because it was not remotely close to anything I've tasted in my life. It didn't make any fucking sense. Effectively, again, it's a tiny of blue cheese and it's incredibly pungent and fierce. And I don't know why, but I put a disconnect because I thought, oh, white truffles have to be treated carefully and delicately. But the reality is the flavor is gnarly too. And when you combine that together, it just actually balanced each other out. And then it was like, I don't know fucking shit. I don't know fucking shit. This is amazing. I love that. All right, Vietnam. I have not been to Vietnam. I haven't either. The reason why, I'm saving it. I think the food of Vietnam is so beautiful. So if I go there, I want to spend like a couple months at least. Yeah. Okay, Spain. Okay, I'll give you Spain. No, I'll take Spain because okay. it was the most memorable meal of my oh, life. Oh, great. So I was filming Lucky Peach, which got renamed Mind of a Chef. And I was there again doing another culinary conference. And when I say culinary conference, I like fashion shows, right? You go in front of a bunch of people and you show them the latest techniques and the shit that you're working on in your restaurants. And I have all these other friends and great chefs. You have Danielle Blue, Wiley Dufresne, and Tony Bourdain was there. When you go to these culinary conferences, you are fed like a fucking pig. Like the best shit. The best Iberico ham, caviar, you name it. Oh my God. And in Spain, you cannot eat any vegetables. It just doesn't exist. It's all meat. There's no green leafy vegetables. I swear to God. Every time I'm in Spain, I go to McDonald's for that little fucking salad cup. Because that's the only fucking place you can get something that's not a canned white asparagus or something canned. Everything's canned fucking vegetables or pork or beef. And you just like crave vegetables and fruit. And we're tired of drinking because in San Sebastian, where we were at, they drink giant goblets of gin tonics. Did you know this? No. It's fucking insane. I don't even know how it became the drink of that area, but we're talking about like double big gulps. That's the only fucking glass they have for gin and tonics. They're like 64 ounces. And you're like, how the fuck are you going to drink all of that? It's just fucking weird. The bars there just serve gin and tonics. There's no other fucking drink. Giant goblets of gin and tonics. So you're so fucking drunk. You're so full and you've been eating so well. The last thing you want to do is honestly, it sounds so obnoxious. You get tired of eating. So that's where we're all at. It was like the last night and so many of the restaurants in San Sebastian are in the countryside, you know, 90 minutes outside the city. And I remember drinking a gin and tonic with Tony, Danielle Blude, and Wiley Dufresne. We're like, fuck, I don't want to go to this restaurant. The Turbo, this beautiful flat fish. It's like probably my favorite fish in the world to eat. And they're like, oh, fucking Turbo. God, I can't eat another goddamn piece of Turbo. And we were coming up with reasons of how not to go there. And we're like, maybe if we just keep on drinking, we won't have to go. So we got fucking shit-faced at one of these gin and tonic bars. That's always a great business plan, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, next thing I know, we're like the organizer of the event. We're like, you guys have to go. And we're like, oh. So I don't even remember much of how we got into a car, getting to this restaurant, but it's now packed with all the attendees and we are fed with the best of the best. And we're all sitting at this giant table. It's this beautiful restaurant overlooking the ocean. Again, it's the last place in the world we wanted to be at. And this is how you know it was an amazing meal. We couldn't stop eating. It was so fucking good. It was the best meal I've ever fucking had. When the turbo came out, even Danielle Baloud was trying to like serve everybody and he was shocked. They're like, no, no, it's off the bone. So they take these giant turbos and they're best in the wintertime, right? Because they fat and they grill everything over charcoal. And as they're grilling them, they spritz them with their local sherry vinegar. My description isn't doing it justice. It's sort of ineffable because it's like eating barbecued fish and it's gelatinous. It's like fish ribs. Oh, wow. And you're like licking your fingers, shits all over your face. It's unreal. 
And we kept on thinking, like, we are so dumb. If we miss this meal, we are fucking idiots. It's still one of the highlights of my life, really was. Amazing. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Okay, if you could live anywhere in the world for a year. I'd probably maybe say Thailand or Vietnam. Those are two parts of the world where the cuisines are unbelievable to me. The food is outrageous. And from what I know of the people would be great too. And listen, I might do that anyway. Yeah. For a while, I had this list completely uninformed of men in professions you should not date. And I have not dated that much. I think I've been out on three dates and then I just, I get married. But the list went as follows. Magician, musician. What do you have against magicians? Listen, we could spend a long time going through all of this. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Okay, I just okay. want to tell you number four is chef. Wait, a clown isn't in the top three? Well, clowns sort of blend with a magician. Okay, okay, okay. Well, listen, I think your list is completely accurate. Thank you. So I was so thrilled you were coming on the show. I thought, oh, this will be great territory for David. Because my theories with dating a chef were not unlike potential red flags for an athlete. With a professional athlete, it felt like like the emotional support you must give after every game with one degree or another would just exhaust me personally. Mm -hmm. And then my assumption with a chef only having watched Hell's Kitchen (laughs) is that I bet the food would be amazing. That would be a real perk. But does it cultivate (laughs) a degree of temperament that I'm not sure I could handle? Then I listened to your book, and I was like, I can't fucking ask David Chang about his anger issues in a humorous way. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. All right. Listen, I can't speak on behalf of all chefs, but there's two people I tell the opposite sex or the same sex, never date. Don't date a Korean guy and never date a chef. And don't date an actress. Yeah, right? And uh, my (laughs) wife got both the Korean guy and the chef, the double whammy, and I'm just a hot mess of a person. And I have been. So you're right. Chefs have, for the most part, if you're not a private chef or you don't have some kind of corporate working gig, your hours are horrible. Even if you have Monday to Friday, you're probably not coming home till one in the morning, two in the morning. And the other thing is people think that my wife or even the people that I've dated in the past, they eat extremely well. I never cooked at home, ever. I act at home on occasion. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Anna, do you act at home? Yeah, I do. I do. (laughs) It's your job. Why would you want to do that? And that's the funny thing. The last thing you ever want to do after spending all day in a kitchen is to spend more time in a kitchen. So, you know, my wife literally thought that I was a fraud because I never cooked for her for like a year. And the other reason why I never cooked for her is cooking for someone while you're dating too early 
sets the bar too high too soon. You are a mean man, David Chang. I know, I know, I know. I said that. It's true. Now I cook all the time. You're not playing like your ace card right off the no, bat? No, no, no. That's why. You got to hold that ace card because <laughs> I don't have many eight cards to play. It's like my only fucking card. But truthfully, now, now that I'm home and I'm not working like I used to, I cook so much. And my life has changed a lot. And I've grown up a lot. And I think being a dad and reprioritizing my life has caused me to reevaluate who I am and why I do what I do. There's a time and place to be young, dumb, and obnoxious. It's the same equivalent of being like too old of a dude dating like too young of a person, right? It just looks weird. I think I've always wanted to be somebody that grew up in a reasonable way. And I think for too long, I was just stuck being this super angry, obnoxious asshole. And I think for the most part, I'm still those things, but I'm trying. I'm trying to grow up. I don't know if we're ever great examiners of how people perceived us all the time. I think it's pretty accurate. I think people got me pretty good when I was younger. I mean, I was pretty monotone as a person, just an angry motherfucker. So yeah, like people say you're an asshole. They were pretty accurate, (laughs) you know? All right, David, we're getting back to what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, shit. That's the hardest question because it used to be cookie dough. Now it's like gooey butter cake. Sometimes it's strawberry. I guess I like salted caramel right now. I love the thought you put behind that. Because I could tell you the brands, and I like to tell myself I'm not an ice cream person, but I think I tell myself that because I don't want to hate myself even more than I do because I always eat it. I'm like, fuck, I ate way too much ice cream, (laughs) and you put the carton away. It feels like the simple optimism of having something icy and sweet and creamy in your mouth. It's like, this is the time for that feeling. What's your flavor? I was just thinking like peach. You know what's an underrated flavor? Pralines and cream. You were Very underrated. so right. You know what's overrated? Rocky Road. I don't know. You like Rocky Road. I think it could be reinvented. Maybe the older, like established brands, it's so predictable because when I was a kid, that was like kind of a novel flavor. Remember? Mm-hmm. Okay. Rum raisin. Rum raisin's highly underrated. Like it can't be a fancy rum raisin. It's got to be like briars or lower quality. Rum raisin tastes good for whatever reason when it's not like a super premium brand. Yeah. Raisins are a passion of mine. Are you also a prune person? No, nor am I a cranberry person. Thank goodness. Are you oatmeal raisin cookie kind of person? Oh yeah. I put raisins in everything. Do you eat ants on a log? Don't tell me you eat ants on a log. I don't because they take too long to make. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. No, I really love to cook, David. I'm not great, but I really love it. And I have an odd amount of kitchen equipment because it's all our family seems to give each other for any major holiday or birthday. Just more cooking equipment. Well, I got to send you our salts and spices. I would love that. What are your thoughts on just plain old vanilla? I'm down with that. Okay. So my mom collects uh, fine food items from all over the world. (laughs) Like what? Like, I was just thinking vanilla beans that she gets from Tahiti, and she has very specific opinions on, like, cinnamon from Thailand or Vietnam and cinnamon from Madagascar. Like, there's a whole thing, and I can't speak for her, but she was very, very, very prepared for this quarantine for her to explore the world through cooking, finally using all the shit that's in her cupboard. (laughs) (laughs) Does she make her own ice cream? Oh, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. I have never made ice cream at home in my life. Zero. Well, you don't even cook for your fucking wife. (laughs) 
I deal now all the time, for the record. But man, was I a shit boyfriend. Okay. What's your favorite curse word? I swear too much. Here's a true fact. The New Yorker ran a profile of me when I was younger, and I broke the record for curse words. I said, fuck, 56 times. And they mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. <laughs> I wish I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome because it would explain why I curse so much. <laughs> I probably say fuck, past tense, present tense, probably the word I say the most every day. Okay, what was your first boss like, or maybe your early influencers? I think the best boss that I had... Let's talk some shit, David. <laughs> well, let's, if you want to talk shit, like my first boss was my dad. And he was a horrible, horrible boss. <laughs> like my mom, again, he passed recently. She said he was a horrible father, a terrible husband, yet I loved him. That was like the best eulogy ever. I guess in terms of cooking, the best boss I had would be probably... Marco Canora and Jonathan Benham and the entire team at Kraft, the first real restaurant that I worked at. I worked at a few others, but that was like the first real, real deal restaurant. Tom Calicchio's restaurant and Marco and Jonathan, Akhtar Nawab. And they were great because they treated me like shit. Like I'm a little sibling to them. It was their way of teaching me the ropes and really pushing me to be better and making my job incredibly difficult with workload. Like every day, for example, on that Garmanger station that we were talking about earlier, every day I had to make a new salad dressing. I could never repeat one salad dressing. Think about that. I think I probably had to come up with 300 different salad dressings in my time there. That doesn't sound like much. It sounds like a lot. It's a fucking pain in the ass. And that's the kind of stuff that they would do, just like needle me. That was so beneficial for my development as a chef because it caused me to try to learn how to make something out of nothing, to use my imagination, and to learn that if I made a buttermilk ranch dressing, that could turn into a blue cheese dressing the next day, right? And then just constantly iterating and iterating. And, and I, I'm so grateful for that opportunity they gave me. You write about the idea of psychological trauma which is something that in the entertainment world, there was an old school mentality of yelling. You know, it was just like barking, yelling, drilling. Do you know directors that are like that? That's a calling card, right? Totally. I am known to be that version of that as a chef. Dave Chang is a yeller and he will scream and curse. I've been honest and open about that since, you know, the first restaurant. And I'm not that kind of person in real life. That's just unfortunately what cooking has brought out of me. And I've tried to get better at that over the years, but that kind of rage is something I've identified early on because that has never been part of who I am as a person. <laughs> I'm a relatively passive aggressive pothead and it's weird to be so aggro about something. Again, I would ask like, why do I fucking care about this so much? It doesn't make any fucking sense. And I've really worked out why I get angry. That took a long time to identify, connecting all the dots all the way to childhood and then developing cognitive and behavioral therapy to sort of temper that. So now I still slip up, but I look at my anger like an addiction. It is very similar to AA, right? And when I get angry, I feel like I fell off the wagon and I, I feel like shit. So I really admire that it's something that you recognize. I worked with this director who was really fucking tough. And it felt irrational, like 90% of the time. And I remember a fellow actor after the shoot was over said to him, you know, you're kind of a dick to your crew. And I was a witness to this. And the flooring part was how shocked he was. This whole time I thought that it was all very intentional and calculated, his anger and rage. So we all took it 
quite personally, but the fact that he wasn't even aware was like, oh, fuck, this might be like even worse than we all right. thought. <laughs> right. You know, something a chef told me early on, because the first restaurant and most of our restaurants are open kitchens and it's like theater. You can see everything and hear everything. And after me just having a normal day, probably being an asshole, a very respectable chef came in and pulled me outside and said, hey, I want to give you advice. The reason you yell is because you're not a good chef and you're insecure. And I was like, fuck you. And I thought about that chef in that moment for like 10 plus years. And the reality is that chef was 100% right. I was completely insecure. And if I was a better chef, if I knew what I was doing, if I had a cohesive plan, that's the problem. Every day is about putting out fires metaphorically and literally. But if I was better at being a boss, there would be no need to yell. I would be thoughtful enough, empathetic enough, and planned far ahead enough to have seen all of these problems ahead of time and to communicate individually to each person what I expected out of them. And if I was so good, I would have told them, watch out for this, watch out for this over here, this might happen. So prepare for here, here, and here. But I never did that. It was always reactionary. And that was a pride swallowing, you know, moment. Shit. Like how amazing that you, not very many people can do that. Yes. Okay. What was your first love like? My first love was probably not reciprocated. They never are. <laughs> no, 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 no. She totally destroyed me. That's what happened. David, I paid a boy 25 cents every day, Ryan Gervon in third grade, so that he would like me. Ryan, you really fucked it up. <laughs> he was the fastest runner, David. Nobody could run faster than Ryan. Well, Ryan, you could have Anna in your life. You chose to run fast. You <laughs> fucked that up. <laughs> Thanks, David. Yeah. No, my first one really crushed me. And it's the kind of one that came into my life later oh. after she knew she could fuck with me and she fucked me again. And of course, like a dummy, I was like, okay. <laughs> Wait, are you like in your 20s? This was like early in my life and then later in my early 20s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They sometimes come back. They haunt you, those things. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we have to honor the scars. My making lemonade out of any heartbreak is that I feel like you're not a complete person. No. Unless you've had your heart, you know, scraped. You have to, unfortunately. Which is why I always get, like, weirded out when I know people or I'm friends with people that only dated one person. <laughs> you know? That's not going to work so well. Yeah. My parents met at age, I don't know, 19. They got married. They had my brother and myself. My brother and I have both been divorced twice. <laughs> you would think that like, we would have been like primed for like stable marriages from the get-go. <laughs> okay, what qualities do you look for in a friend? It's pretty simple. I think honesty, loyalty, which always makes it weird to say because of fucking Trump. <laughs> but like loyalty is probably tied with honesty. I want my friends to stick with me in the bad times as much as they will in the good times. And also to be loyal enough and honest enough to tell me what I don't want to hear. And then you get out the knife. Uh, yeah. And then I'm like, fuck you. I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> you know how it goes. I used to do. <laughs> On what occasion do you lie? I'll be honest, I don't really lie. I really don't. And it's not because I'm being altruistic. It's just fucking easier. Totally. Why lie? You just have to keep track of shit. I am not lying because I'm fucking lazy. <laughs> What's a trait you dislike in others? Oh, man. There's so many. 
I think lack of integrity to be able to believe something, but not be able to be honest about it. Right. Basically the entire Republican party. Full stop. (laughs) David, on your podcast, you talk a lot about movies. What is your favorite rainy day movie? Can I say Yogi Bear 3D? (laughs) Okay. It's Yogi Bear 3D. I'm in most of the movie and I really think I had five lines all of which started with a yogi of varying emotional degree. Listen, that's art. That's minimal art. You did it. It's paying a mortgage, David. (laughs) (laughs) What is your greatest extravagance? I love caviar. Yeah. When it comes to food snobbery, I am the biggest fucking food snob you've ever met. But like, I do like chicken fingers or anything like that. But what I like to do is dip a chicken finger in a big tub of expensive caviar. (laughs) And I'm not talking about the paddlefish rows. I'm talking about the stuff that is illegal to get. That is just unbelievable. You got you can't get it here in America, but like the stuff from Russia is outrageous. It's so fucking good. You're like, why would you want to drink it with vodka? And then you do it and you're like, oh my God. So David, remember when you were going to send the spices and the salts and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Could you pack a little bit of that illegal caviar in there too? Just a sample. No, I, I'm not promoting <laughs> I'm illegal caviar. I've just, when I've been in Europe, I've tasted it. There's great caviar made domestically in Idaho. Idaho has like, I always joke like the Tesla of caviar because you're talking about these massive, massive fish that are like a thousand pounds that swim up from the ocean and they live in this estuary. It's just unbelievable. And I can't believe we're talking about caviar. So uh, I'll shut up because I could talk about it all day. So it's great. It's really, really unbelievable. There's all kinds of caviar, but technically if it's not like from a sturgeon, it's not really caviar. But I even like salmon roe. Salmon roe is delicious. I think there's always that challenge, and this is a very simplistic way to put it. When you eat something that challenges your palate and then makes you feel a bit alive, I feel like the first time as a kid or whenever as an adult you have a raw oyster or sea urchin or caviar, the flavor expectation can be off-putting because it feels foreign. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes something that inexplicably you crave. Caviar is not something that I think kids would like to eat. It's fishy, it's salty, it's got a weird texture, and it tastes like something that you're not supposed to like, and maybe that's why I like it so much, you know? Yeah. What haven't you taken the time to learn about? I'm so bad at languages. And even when I had to take the time in school, I cheated. So I don't know shit. And my Korean now is worse than my son's. I say the same thing. And I don't think my brain can absorb anything more in life in general. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like such a dumbass about my language skill that I don't even call English English anymore. I just call it American. (laughs) Is there a moment in your career that you're most proud of? I'll be honest. I was really proud of the team in Sydney professionally when they were ranked best restaurant in Australia and I had nothing to do with it. The more I try to make something better these days, the more I fuck it up. So just give it to everyone else to run and they're going to do way better than I do. How did you meet your wife? I think the thing I hate the most in life are nightclubs. I fucking hate nightclubs with a white hot heat. The only way they'd be even remotely fun is if you were on like drugs. I hate them so much. And the irony is, again, I met my wife in a nightclub. That's the craziest story. When I tell my friends this, they're like, you fucking hate nightclubs. And long story cut short, I got a call from my friend. He said, hey, we're going to meet a bunch of girls at a club. Do you want to go? And I'm like, no, but I'll go because there's girls that you know that are there. And I went, I stayed for five minutes. 
once I heard the beat of the shitty music, I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. But I noticed this really attractive girl sitting across or standing in the crowd. And that's all I needed. I didn't even introduce myself. I mean, we sort of met. And the next day she held a barbecue. I showed up with my friend that invited me to the club. They were cooking food for all these guests. And they had no idea what they were doing. Like just burgers and hot dogs. But they were like going down. They were in the weeds. And I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to show my superhuman skills. <laughs> and I made food for like 75 people and was helping them clean up. And it was now like nine-ish or so. And people were leaving. It was a Sunday night. And they were like, wow, we're really hungry. And I said, oh, you know what's interesting? I have a restaurant just two blocks down the street. Why don't we go over there to eat? And that's how it started. What you told us. That you did not cook. I didn't cook for them. Hamburgers, hot dogs is technically theirs. 75 people? That's good seduction material there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the first time it actually came out the way it should have come out. So (laughs) I was thankful and she is amazing to put up with me. So Okay. In one word, how would you like to be remembered? God damn it. What's up with these hard questions? (laughs) Shit. Cranky. Curmudgeon. That's it. Okay, wait, that might be accurate. Yeah, I think it's, I can grow into being more curmudgeon. No, I don't know. I mean, if I said like kind, loving, that's bullshit. Well, Curmudgeonly is a very accurate word for who I am right now. Well, I think you're fucking amazing and I cannot thank you enough. Truly, it means so much. I appreciate it. And anything I can ever do for you, let me know. And uh, real pleasure to speak to you. And hopefully we get to do this again soon. I would love that. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, everyone. April Beyer is back on the show today. April is a dating coach and matchmaker who has spent the past 20 years dedicated to helping people find and build lasting relationships. You can find more information about April and our other experts at unqualified.com. Hey, April, welcome back. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you. It's been awesome. Let's call Mitch. Hello. Mitch, hi. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm here with April Beyer, and she is amazing. Nice to meet you. Thank you for writing in, Mitch, and thank you for talking with us. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, of course. I feel like recently I've just been feeling like one of those people who will be forever alone. And some days I'm okay with that, but then other times it just kind of scares the hell out of me. But a quick rundown, I came out halfway through college back in like 2013. Um, and I maybe had like two or three flings in college, but I always knew I wanted to work in the entertainment industry and move to Los Angeles. So I didn't really pursue those relationships because I didn't want to end up having to choose between a guy in my career. So after I graduated college, I moved to Los Angeles in January of 2015. And I spent like the first year or two, like really focusing on my career and getting to know 
the city and the people. And it wasn't until about 2017 when I really started putting myself out there and going on dates, etc. The past few years, there had been multiple guys that I really liked and we got along great. We had good conversations leading up to the dates. And I felt like the dates went well. We had a lot in common, you know, music we liked and movies we loved and places we wanted to travel and go see and stuff. But most of them ended up just ghosting me, which uh, really sucked because, you know, when you don't get a reason as to why, that kind of hurts. But then there were a couple other dates that went even better. Um, like there was a bunch of dates that we went on over the course of like six to eight weeks. But for those guys, I was realizing that I was the one who was texting them first and engaging in the plans and, you know, asking them to dinner or asking them to go hiking or to the movies. And I would kind of always ask myself why I was the only one putting in the effort. So I decided to stop texting them just to see if they would reach out to me and make the plans. And they never did. So then I was like, okay, well, now am I the one ghosting or are they still ghosting me because they're not putting in the effort that I was? And it clearly kind of seems like they don't want to continue dating. So I've just been stuck in this rut recently because, you know, one, we're in a pandemic and it's harder to meet people. Two, I'm not like really the biggest on social dating sites. And I know at the end of the day, we shouldn't really compare ourselves to like other people's like timelines. But for someone being 28, I turned 29 in a couple months, you know, never having been in a relationship or in love. It's really hard not to think about that. And I love Los Angeles. My career is going well, but the older I get, the more I'm torn between moving back to the Midwest or staying in LA. And, you know, I'm wondering if you think that a city and the people who live in it can really live up to like the toxic stereotype that people make it out to be. Mitch, you have called the right and wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the right one first. <laughs> okay, April, you're up. <laughs> hey, Mitch. Hi, April. Hey, dear. Okay, so you're 28. You're soon to be 29. Mm-hmm. Okay, you said you've never been in love. Why do you think you've never been in love? I just don't feel like I have. Like, I don't feel like I've really experienced, like, true love, wanting to be with a person, spend time with them all the time and be with them for like the rest of my life or possibly, you know, get married with someone. I haven't really met that right person. And I feel like I might not meet them in this city. Hey, Mitch, what is the significance of coming out in college? Why did you specify that? Did it feel late to you? Kind of, because I, you know, back in like early 2010, 2011, especially in the Midwest, being gay wasn't very accepted there. So it definitely took the gay community longer, I feel like to come out in that specific area of like the U.S. But then I like look back now and I see like all these college kids going to the same college I did and they, you know, they were coming out at early ages and like early college or even like high school. So they were able to be more open with themselves and experience like the dating pool that I really wasn't able to because I didn't come out till later on. Do you feel like Mitch now, especially like living in Los Angeles, do you feel much more comfortable with all of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Another reason why I moved out here was because it was so gay friendly and very um, liberal. Yeah. Keep in mind, Mitch, that LA is made up of people from all over. You know, my husband's from the Midwest and it's why he was my favorite choice. You know, I'm a California girl. I meet a guy from the Midwest. 
you know, true blue, (laughs) straightforward, meat and potatoes kind of guy. And he got my heart because he was so different from everybody else around me. So please know that that's actually a value add Mm -hmm. that you're from the Midwest. (laughs) No, I I find myself attracted more to guys from the Midwest. The ones that I really did like out here in LA, like they were from like Ohio or Minnesota or Michigan, like myself. Yeah. Where is the expectation? Where do you get that from that you know, by 28, 29, that you should have all of this locked down and that you should have had love and be on your way. Who told you or where did you read that you should have this buttoned up by now? It's not specifically that. It's more, I guess, it could be like just a personal fear of mine of, you know, just knowing that I feel like the majority of people like were able to date in like high school and college and kind of like figure out like who they wanted out of a partner and like what certain characteristics like they're attracted to. And I feel like that's scary for someone like me because I've never had that. And it's scary to jump into a relationship now because, you know, most of my friends are saying it's kind of like a good thing that I've waited so long to like date. But in my mind, it might not be because say, you know, the person that I'm actually meant to be with might come next. But then in the back of my mind, I might be like, well, I should still, you know, test the waters and, you know, date around and kind of like really see like who I want to be with. So you're actually kind of creating a scenario that hasn't yet happened. I guess. Is that like my own self-fulfilling prophecy? (laughs) Well, you know, just remember, you're the guy that chose career and education over relationships. So even though some of those people around you were, you know, figuring it out and they knew what they wanted and what they didn't want and they were dating somebody, you were intentionally not choosing somebody because you had this vision, this dream. You wanted to go to college. You wanted to focus on your work. You wanted to get to LA. So it's not that you couldn't. It's just you chose not to. But that was back then because now recently I have been. I really have been trying to like put myself out there and like go on dates. Okay. So for how long do you think? Like just since you've been quote unquote putting yourself out there? Like four or five years. Okay. You know, If I were to tell you that most of these lasting relationships are happening with people in their 30s, would you believe me? The fact that you've been spending your time developing your life and your foundation and who you are, and then you meet somebody, makes you that much more of a trustworthy partner later on. And I don't think you need to learn or fear meeting somebody and then backing out of it because you feel like you're going to need more experience because we don't know what that other person's going to bring to the table either. So don't imagine their part yet. Just imagine, hey, I'm almost 29. I've been developing my core in my life. And when I meet a guy, I'm a better partner because I know who the heck I am. And I don't have all of these failed romances from the past that have kind of put a ding in my door, yeah, so to speak. April, how do you sort out the people that, like Mitch, want a relationship as opposed to people that are treating it kind of like a game? Yeah. How does that language get broken down? So it's like, no, 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 I don't want to be swiping for the next four years. I actually would like to have a companion in my life that I love. Yeah, it's a video game. Yeah. Right. It's a time passer and a time suck. So first things first is that, you know, to get over that hump of not feeling rejected is this swipe is exactly equal to if you were in a bar and you walked in the door and somebody looked up and met your eyes and you met theirs. That's it. 
It is no acknowledgement of, I like you, I'm interested, I'm ready, I'm available. It's literally just the look up. So that's number one. Number two, on your profile, speak to more of who you are and what you want and not what you don't want. And unfortunately, with some of the gay dating apps is that it's so sex forward. And I'm sure, Mitch, you've seen this too. It's like, hey, I'm a Midwest guy. I'm educated. I want a relationship. I don't want to be in this kind of environment where everybody's looking for a hookup. But I know plenty of guys that have called me and said, listen, I can't be in the gay bars. I don't want to be. And I don't want to be on these dating sites. How do I find somebody who is as steady and ready? And I think it's really about your choice in imagery to make sure that your images literally reflect back like who you are that you don't play their game, you play your game, that you state exactly who you are and what you're looking for. You don't have to say, I'm not interested in the swipe. And then finally, it's about being super open-minded to connection and not worrying about your end goal. So your need for a relationship can't be your driver, especially now, Mitch. It just has to be, hey, I'm interested in connecting with people that are like-minded, share my thoughts, share my values, and that's it. Like, don't worry about attraction or anything else. I feel like I definitely am. I mean, going back to what Anna said about like weeding out like the inconsiderate people, I totally agree with that. And I also agree with like knowing how dating sites can just be very vapid and shallow. Like I don't like to be on them. Right. Like I said, you cannot change the way people are behaving But it's important that right now, because you're so young, Mitch, you have to know how much time you have in front of you. You're so young. You have so many opportunities. And life gets better the closer you get to 30, especially, I believe, with gay relationships. You're going to start to see this. Thank God you're having your birthday soon (laughs) because the 20s for anybody is really difficult. But think about it. Like when we're in our 20s, everybody's horny and like having sex, like whether you're gay or straight, it doesn't matter. I remember being more jealous and driven, but more insecure and very, it would be hard for me to be more self-absorbed than I am now, but (laughs) in my 20s, for sure. Yeah, she's right. It's comparison time. You know, it's a time fraught with a lot of insecurity and people are just kind of, they're doing their best, right? They're not out there to try to hurt anybody. They're just figuring their shit out, really. And the comparison is huge. I think what's most important is that we talk about the effort you're putting out because the app fatigue is real. And usually people that feel the app fatigue has nothing to do with how long they've been on the apps, but how they've been using the apps. Are you on it? Like checking, I know you've been doing it in the past, but when you were on them, were you checking it all the time? And like you said earlier, you were the one making the dates. You were the one planning the dinners, making the phone calls. Most of the guys that I was going on dates with was either through friends or it was through like meeting them on like Instagram or maybe Twitter. It really wasn't through like Tinder or Bumble or um, any of those apps. I did have those when I first came out to LA in like 2015, 2016, but it was just exhausting, just the constant like swiping and the shallow conversations. And it just felt like it wasn't authentic as meeting people in person or through friends, which I know does kind of weed out the more inconsiderate people who maybe wouldn't just straight up like ghost you because all your communication was like on like an app, but it was like meeting through like a person and more like personable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that for you, 
it's understanding where your effort is. Do you mind me asking what you do? I'm a publicist. Okay. I own uh, my own PR agency. Mitch, congratulations. (laughs) I knew it. Thank you. I was going to ask you, Mitch, if you're an entrepreneur. So when you own your own business, you're used to handling everything. You're responsible for others. You're working for people. You know, if you don't show up, it doesn't get done. Right. Right. Correct. Okay. So that's manifesting in your personal life. And if you're not careful, you can get so exhausted from all of the work and the effort. I believe (laughs) that you need to get into this idea of receiving Mm -hmm. and trusting that if you don't get it done, that somebody else will bring around the wagons and offer that phone call or offer that plan. And until they do, you're going to sit back, chill out, and rest. I'm not saying be passive, but this is how you weed people out. You did it before, but you did it as a way of like, oh, they're not making it, so I'm, I'm just done. As opposed to starting it and really paying attention to, I put out a call, now let's see what I get back. So April, you're saying his drive in his business, there's a direct correlation with his dating approach. Yes, I would imagine I'm going to take like a wild guess that you were raised to be successful, to be educated. You're diligent. You're hard on yourself. You're a perfectionist. <laughs> you're a thoughtful person. You're driven. Like, am I? Am I Read me. <laughs> She's good, right, above. Mitch? I know. She's so good. It's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. It's spilling over into your dating life, Mitch. That makes sense. I mean, it does make sense if I'm like, you know, a go-getter, a hard hitter, like trying to really, you know, make my business work to make my clients happy and, you know, do all that. And then it kind of does spill over into, you know, trying to find a guy and like making the moves and doing that. But like, sometimes I want to be taken care of too, or I want someone to like, you know, pull the reins back and like take charge on like myself or like the relationship, you know. Just so I don't have to have complete control all the time because I do completely in my professional life. I get it. You're talking to two people who are equally as driven in our prospective well, careers. I'm right? backing like, off these days. It's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Honest back up. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you're checking boxes. And because of that sort of, we call it the driver mentality, you're the driver of all things. And what happens is when you're the driver you end up getting very hurt and very frustrated by people because you're like, if I don't pick up the ball, no one else will. But it goes with our friendships. It goes with our partnerships. It goes with people we work with. You have to do what you do, but then also have this awareness of, okay, is everybody else around here carrying their weight too? And do I trust that if I don't do it, that I'll still receive that phone call? It's a trust within yourself, not of these guys. It's a trust of like, hey, I showed up. I was real. I was myself. It was a great date. If he doesn't call again, next, you know, mm-hmm. because you can't manufacture these relationships because what you do is you end up bringing in lazy people into your life. And then you're really driving the entire thing the entire way through. And it doesn't make for a happy life because I'm hearing you and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, 28 going on 29, you're smart, you're entrepreneurial, you're successful you got to have more patience right now. It feels like it's been four to five years, right? But if we really broke it apart and we had more time, I bet you you've only been really at this perfect stage of like that next level readiness for maybe the last year. And you might actually even only be entering into it now because when we're truly, truly ready for partnership 
and we've kind of quieted that voice and we're in our receiving space, that person shows up and you don't need thousands. You really don't. And the dating apps give us this illusion that we have to have deal flow in order to be successful. So for those of us that dated before dating apps, we didn't have that. I didn't get to get in front of thousands of people a month to find my partner. I was lucky if I saw one guy a month that I liked. Yeah. But April, we've also overly romanticized, for better or for worse, our past relationships. Exactly. Exactly. But we knew less. It's kind of like— right. um, We knew less. <laughs> it's like the older you get, like you refine your palate, right? So when your palate is refined emotionally, you meet less people. You consume less stuff. And as Anna so beautifully put it, the romanticizing of the past, more people got to be in our circle— when we were younger, because we didn't really know what we were doing yet. So as you get older and as you refine your palate, you become more selective. And when you're more selective, less people are around. That's part of the plan. And it's designed that way so that when you do see the right friends, partners, and lovers, that they're super easy to spot. There's just not that many. Because, you know, at your age, Mitch, being an entrepreneur, that also puts you in your own category. So you need somebody who's hardworking. You need somebody who's curious. You need somebody who is patient. You need somebody who is into partnership skills. Yeah. Not a taker. Because if somebody is looking to have their whole life planned for them, you're going to be exhausted. You have staff. You have clients. You have all kinds of people you have to worry about all day long. And if you're anything like me, you worry about your clients Friday night at midnight or Saturday at three in the morning, right? We don't have to actually be at work to be concerned about our clients. So for you, it's really putting it out there that you're here now and saying that you're this Midwest transplant because the idea of you going back when you already told us that you love LA and that your life is here and your career is here, it's not going to change much of anything because I think that by being here as long as you have, you may go back and may not find your people anymore. You've mm. grown exponentially. So give it time. April, that is a great point. Interesting. You know, we always look back. It's kind of like how we're all looking at this pandemic, right? We're all saying, I want my life back. I want things the way they were. And all that does is upset us and frustrate us and really just make us depressed. This is what it is right now. How can we make the most of it? So I say you need at least, at least another 24 months, maybe 36 here where you don't even think about going home and you say, I am in it to win it and I'm not on any kind of time clock and the person I need to be with since I don't need many because I'm busy anyway is out there and I'm going to be very selective. I'm going to say who I am, what I'm looking for, and I'm going to engage with people as long as they're smart and all the traits I talked about, curious, smart. He's got to be partnership skills, meaning he's calling you as much as you're calling him. He's making plans with you as much as you're making plans with him. And by the way, that has nothing very rarely to do with interest level. That's just who those people are because you've done it, right, Mitch? Even when you weren't sure that this guy was for you, you were still picking up the phone, making plans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you ante up and you grow your career... A lot of like busy professional women feel this way too, is that the higher they climb, the less they find romance. It's harder, right? The stakes are higher. Things are different. Maybe if you, you know, didn't have your own company, it would be different. The circle would be bigger. 
Yeah. Keep in mind that there's still so much time. I just think you're just really hard on yourself. I might be. I think my generation, I mean, I feel like we feel older than we actually are. And we do need to take that into perspective. And yeah, maybe when I'm in my 30s, that's when I'll like really, truly find someone. Well, by the way, don't think in terms of, you know, then, because that's going to make you sad too, because we want you to have love and attention and affection and adoration now. So just think about it in terms of, I'm not going to settle, but I'm going to keep my eye open my mind open, my heart open. I'm just going to be out there connecting. And along the way, there's going to be one person that I just want to spend more of my time with. If you frame it that way, it won't be like, oh, I'm going to be in this dearth of activity until it happens. Because that's no fun, right? You want to be dating. You want to be connecting with people. But just taking your eye off the prize, off the target, doesn't mean, I always say, just because you're letting go of your grip doesn't mean you're letting go of your dream. It's that grip that makes us angry and frustrated and not cool to date. And it's the open-mindedness that says, hey, you know, I'm looking and I'm ready to receive it, but I have no idea when it's going to happen. That's what makes you an easier person to know. And it makes your dating life more effortless and less stress. Thank you. (laughs) I know this doesn't sound like practical, tangible advice because, you know, the practical, tangible advice is actually very easy to give. Everything starts with mindset. Everything. April, I'm so convinced you are such a genius. (laughs) Really, I love your approach of curiosity and confidence and self. It's not self-reflection. It's not self-determination. But I guess a sense of one's own self-worth before you date. Well, if you think about it, if everybody did that kind of self-check You know, we all look at our cars before we go on long road trips, but nobody looks under the hood of their own self before they start dating. And then they get kind of pummeled in the wind. Like if I were, let's say I were single right now and I was back, quote unquote, out there, I would have knowledge of what are my core values? What is it that I want? What are my deal breakers? What do I have to offer? What's my romantic value? And I would keep my list really tight and really simple. And I would enjoy, I wouldn't be thinking of, when am I going to meet them? The people that take their eye off the target, in my opinion, and all of my clients who have actually gotten engaged and married through me, they were the ones that came in with hope without the grip. They were the ones that came in and said, you know what? I know who I am and I know what I'm looking for, but let's just try some stuff on. It's the people that came in with this mission of we got to get it done yesterday. I have literally fallen on my face with like I was not successful with those guys. So it is attitude. Yeah, but the societal pressure that Mitch is feeling with timeline, I think we all feel, and it's hard to dismiss. I think at 17, I have my regiment lined up. I was going to get married at 27, have a child potentially if I wanted one at 30. Of course, things don't work. (laughs) I've been divorced twice. (laughs) I had a child at 35, and I'm not sure my body can handle the journey again. You know what? I guess I'm stating the obvious that things don't go according to the plan. Yeah. Do you feel that, Mitch? Do you feel that pressure? Definitely. I feel like my generation definitely feels that pressure. Yeah, I think you, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's something to unpack because you said it earlier, we all feel older than what we really are. So it's really just, Mitch, it's about getting perspective back. Perspective is everything. You know, you only need one. And the further along you are and the further along somebody else is, the better you can de-risk your future. Because remember, you bring somebody into your life, your heart, your bed, your business, you're tangling 
with somebody. So you better know what you're doing, right? You better know who you are. And so the older you get, the closer you are to finding the relationship that's going to stick because you know who you are and that person hopefully knows who they are. And when you do, it's easier to see like, okay, wait a minute, like this guy is not the right you know, person for me to hang out with and spend any time with. And that's that selective thing we've been talking about, not being picky, but being really selective. Just ignore the pressure. It's just marketing. <laughs> it's just advertising and marketing. Hey, Mitch, did we help you? You definitely opened my eyes to like some new perspectives that I really didn't think to, you know, call myself out on, I guess. But yeah, I think I'll still take it easy and take it slow and not try to think that I need to compare myself to anyone else and everyone's past is different and, you know, just continue to try to talk with guys and make plans. And if they don't work out, then don't get too hard on myself because, you know, we're all going through different things at the moment and it doesn't mean they're malicious or, you know, volatile against me directly. They could be going through their own thing. 100%. Hopefully eventually in the next, you know, couple of years, I might find someone and, If not, maybe I'll just take a little European vacation and then I find someone there. You never know. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The cool thing is, is that it happens when you least expect it. You know, that's the best part of all of this. Isn't that the truth, though? But Mitch, I love it that you're looking because for me, companionship is so crucial. I just appreciate your sense of that. Because I think that's something that, you know, we very much have in common and like millions of other people. So thank you, Mitch, so much. Thank you guys so much. Who knows? Maybe there's a fella in like San Fran or something. Maybe there's somebody in uh, Sydney that's listening. Somebody listening. (laughs) Yeah, somebody listening. (laughs) And then we, you know, get together and get and need to get married and you're ordained. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I want to come. I want a front, front row, row seat. seat. April, front you're walking center. Mitch down the aisle. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll be there. Perfect. Truly, I can't thank you enough. I've loved talking to you. And Same. thank you for talking to us. <laughs> Thanks, Mitch. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Good April. You. you too. Okay, have a wonderful rest of your you're day. You're welcome. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. April, thanks again. Thanks, Anna. It's such a pleasure. 